Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and ask us. The more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by Prost, Exercise for Prostate Cancer Incorporated, a not-for-profit charity set up in 2012 by myself. Dr. Joe Millions. If you want to know any more information about Prost, including our online service now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health. So, Prost to you. Where I want to call my home. So, stop for a second and listen. Hello, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This week, we thought we'd do some talking about our top five, or actually we just thought that we'd have some snippets of our top five. So here we go. Number one is episode five, which is turtlenecks, to be or not to be. I don't know about you guys, but this really surprised me. I thought that circumcision would not be at number one. Number two was episode one, Parker the Performer. Well, you know, he was very great and talked a lot about his um, performance post-prostate cancer and was very open, so that was fantastic. Number three, the younger man with prostate cancer. Well, he was hilariously funny and entertained us all. Episode 28, Can You Make Penises Bigger? comes in at number four. This doesn't surprise me at all. In fact, I thought he would have come in at number one. And episode four is number five on the list with the Pop-Up Penis Podcast. We talk about pelvic health and penile exercise and pelvic exercises in there. So I hope you've all enjoyed this week's little spots of of our top five. And it might encourage you to go back and listen to one of those again. Thanks a lot. See you next week. Bye. Circumcision is very controversial. And some people will still come saying that they want circumcision for cosmetic reasons or because they've been told that sexually it's better, but there's no evidence for that whatsoever. And so there are medical reasons and then there are social or religious reasons for circumcision, but the only medical indication really um, is phimosis. And so if an adult guy came to you and said, look, I just don't like the way it looks, I just don't want this hat on my snake anymore. What would you do? Would you refer them on or would you try and talk them out of it or what, no, what would I, your approach be? Okay. I think the, the reason for that is that, as with a lot of things sexual, most people are getting their experience from pornography. Most pornography comes from the States and most men in the States are circumcised. Yeah. So by definition, most porno penises, if you like, are larger than average and circumcised. And so that makes men who are not circumcised or of a normal size anxious and self-conscious. So often all they need is reassurance about what is normal and what is normal function. Yeah, okay. And then have you found any differences in people's sexual preferences, whether or not they'd like to be circumcised or not? 
No, as I say, they have actually looked into this in terms of sexual pleasure for the man or the woman mm -hmm. if there's a heterosexual um, relationship, and there's no difference in either between having circumcision or not circumcision. Um, men who are recently circumcised, the, the head of the penis, the glands, um, is obviously not used to being exposed and tends to be a little bit more sensitive, but that's not necessarily a, a positive thing. It can be quite difficult. Um, and men who are circumcised from, for life, you know, have always had that, so they've never experienced a foreskin. There was a movement a few years ago for people wanting to get their foreskins put back on again, um, <laughs> and uh, because there was some, some uh, idea that the movement of the foreskin on and off the head enhanced your sexual pleasure. But again, the evidence is neither way. I actually had a look online and you can buy all sorts of weird and wonderful contraptions that you can put on to stretch the skin that's on the shaft over the head and all that. And I found two studies, one which asked for men's subjective views, where they said whether or not before and after circumcision they had better sexual pleasure and sensitivity. And the guys said that they did. But then when they actually did a proper test and they measured it with proper equipment, there was no difference at all in sexual pleasure or sensitivity. So that's kind of a bit of an urban myth, I yeah. think, by the sound of it. The most common thing is also about if a young person, um, if his father was circumcised or if there's not a father figure in the home, then how to handle a foreskin is never taught. Mm. So young men are not taught to retract the foreskin, to clean underneath, do normal hygiene and so on and so forth. So sometimes when I examine somebody who comes in complaining of, of not being able to retract or pain with retraction, when you look at the penis, it's never been retracted. Mm. So, so there's horror um, when I say, well, let's just put it off the head and see what's underneath. <laughs> and it's almost like, oh, my God, you know, you're, you're going to make, pull the thing off. So, so often it's about education, mm -hmm. and if there is tightness there, sometimes you can tell at a glance this is, there's no way anything other than circumcisions is going to fix this. But often attention to hygiene, treatment of possible dermatitis or infection, and then progressive stretching um, done by the, by the, the patient will, will mean that the circumcision is not necessary. Yeah. You know? So we always treat those things in the first instance rather than keeping them, away, keeping them away from the surgeon, if you like, and, unless it's absolutely necessary. And so what age should a boy be able to roll back his foreskin on his own? You shouldn't attempt to, to retract the foreskin under the age of four, mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it remains adherent until six, but certainly by six the, 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 the foreskin should be able to be retracted and should be retracted to wash and, and, and so on and so forth. I have a funny story about this that my son will probably never forgive me for telling, but when he was about five, he discovered that he could pull his foreskin back. And um, I remember him one day, his godmother came round to visit and he was most excited to tell her that he actually had two penises. And she was like, what are you talking about? And he rolled back, he said, look, there's one. And then he rolled back his foreskin and another one popped out. And he was like, and there's another one. <laughs> and he was like so excited about it. And I apologise to my son out there if he ever listens to this and knows I've told that story to yeah. everybody. But, yeah, very exciting when you discover that what's hiding underneath, I think, for a young man. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, the history of circumcision is actually fascinating. Um, and the, if you look around the world at the different instances, there's huge variation. And what's interesting is that in countries where doctors are paid to do circumcisions and patients are paid by insurance companies to receive money for that, it continues in a high rate because it's a vested interest to do it. In countries where there's no um, payment there, um, there's a, unless there's a medical indication, the rates are far, far lower. 
Um, and so historically, as I say, the States has one of the highest uh, levels of in the non-Muslim world. Um, but other than that, religious um, reasons in the Muslim and the Jewish community date back obviously hundreds of years. Um, but in the Christian um, teachings, um, sacrifice enough was made by Jesus being put on the cross. So therefore, the advice was that you therefore don't need to to give your foreskin as some sort of uh, archaic <laughs> offering uh, to the offering, gods. Because <laughs> that's what it was originally. Yeah, it was okay. Basically, it was a, an offering to the gods. I give you my foreskin as penance. And that's how it remains in the Muslim and Jewish right. um, teaching. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah and then it became, it was out of fashion until the late 1900s when anesthesia and surgery became back fashionable mm -hmm. and it became fashionable to have it done and, and all the wealthy people had it done and it was the thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then, interestingly, in the early 20th century, it was thought that that having a foreskin might save men from masturbating too much or being sexually uh, promiscuous, and, and it was all about hygiene and propriety and, and, and saving yourself, you know, be this clean, virginal person ready for marriage. Wow. Um, so it, it took on that fashion, yeah. um, and it's continued that way, in, in particularly in, in white and black American um, culture. The Hispanics are about 50%, it's mm -hmm. about 80% in white and black. Americans. Yeah, well, it's about twenty percent in Europe. It was interesting because I've been reading a book that's written about penises mm -hmm. from an English guy, and he's all in his book. It's all pro not having it done. Mm -hmm. And then there's another urologist in America who's written a good, great book on penis problems, but his chapter on circumcision is all pro. So one of the things he brings up is, and this is very controversial from what I can gather, is that having a foreskin gives you more susceptibility to getting STIs or sexually yeah. transmitted diseases. Um, but there is research for and against both of those. What, what do you think about that? Well, so that um, came to light in the 1990s. There was a particular study that showed that in Africa um, there was actually a 50% reduction in, in heterosexual transmission of HIV um, in men who had been circumcised compared to men that weren't circumcised. Um, and, and certainly there is other studies that show, for example, that rate of penile cancer is higher in men that haven't been mm. circumcised, and penile cancer is thought to be due to HPV, to genital wart virus. So there's no doubt that there is an association, but it seems that the association is more to do with penile hygiene rather than the presence or absence of a foreskin. Mm -hmm. So if the foreskin has never been retracted and you're not circumcised, then yes, bugs can get trapped and transmitted. Whereas if, if somebody it has good hygiene, I don't think in, in, a, in a, um, somebody who has good hygiene and good personal practice, I don't think anybody's shown that there's a difference in transmission. Um, it was just all dates back to that study. Right. But then that was then jumped upon by those people who were encouraging it for religious reasons or financial reasons. There we are, we told you so, we were right all along. Yes. Um, and then therefore that's given us another 20 years of, of, uh, uh, of reason to recommend circumcision. Yeah, okay. And so in an ideal world, for all the guys who are listening that have a hat on their snake or a turtleneck or whatever it is, um, how should they look after it? What should they do every day? I'll just to add to that, we used to call them cavaliers and roundheads because I come from, from England. Um, but in terms of looking after your foreskin, it's important to clean under and around the head of the penis. But it's also important to try and avoid using soap in that area. Mm -hmm. Just as a woman shouldn't use soap in and around the vagina, it's preferable just to use water or possibly a moisturising cream. Um, probably to retract um, when you've had a pee and certainly the shower or whatever just to give it a bit of a rinse around 
just to stop matter and, and accumulating under the foreskin. Um, there's, a, there's a secretion called smegma, um, which uh, is a sort of white, cheesy substance that if you don't wash will accumulate, and that can aggravate dermatitis and can harbour bugs and, and be um, add to poor hygiene and so on. And as a side note, this is something that I see in practice a bit, if you have a female patient who gets you know, recurrent candida or thrush, as more commonly known, and she has a partner with a foreskin, do you recommend that the partner treats under his foreskin with the thrush cream as well? Yeah. Um, I'm not convinced that it actually makes a huge difference whether the man has a foreskin or not. Mm-hmm. However, there are some men who seem to get and harbour candida, just as there are some women. So if there is a couple where, yes, each time they have sex, they tend to do it, I'll often say to both of them that why didn't you put some cream on the morning after the night before? And that seems to be quite a useful intervention to prevent passing it backwards and forwards. Great. Well, thank you very much for talking to us about foreskins or cavaliers and roundheads. <laughs> and um, I'm sure we'll speak to you again because I'll ask you some more information about other topics as we go along. My pleasure, Melissa. Thank you very much. So, the first thing I want to ask about is the case of the disappearing penis. What did you think when you woke up and you looked down? Well, I wasn't happy. <laughs> <laughs> I was not happy. Is this with a catheter in? Yep, yep. catheter okay. in immediately yeah, no, post. It just, uh, yeah, post-op it just disappears. Yeah. Um, definite difference in uh, appearance. Um, but then I thought, oh, well, you know, the catheter's in. When the cat comes out, things will be fine catheter was removed and I did notice a change in the shape mm-hmm. um, because of the uh, prostate being removed the tube gets pulled a little bit and reconnected and it changes the the shape uh, but thanks to Melissa that's changed <laughs> it's back to normal now so the first time I saw you was also post-op which is unusual because I also, like Joe, like to see people about four weeks before because it's just nice to tell people that it's not all doom and gloom and that we can help. So, um, and I would normally tell you if I had have seen you then, when you wake up, they're going to think that the surgeon's chopped half your penis off, but he hasn't. It's just hiding like a turtle's head back in where the prostate was and once we get onto some rehab, it'll come back out. So now that we've been doing the rehab and I'll get you to tell us what you're doing, but now you've been doing it, do you feel like it's returned pretty much to normal size? It has. Yeah. It has. Great. My wife's very happy. So how did you feel the first time you and your wife had to come to visit me? Like how were you feeling about that? Uh, Because I had options, uh, medication, Mm -hmm. uh, which I, I thought, yeah, well, the medication, one of them will work. Yeah. Uh, and I was sort of uh, banking on that. I had, um, I think, Spedra. Yes. Right. Yeah. So the that first was time. The first one I yeah. Took. So I'll just give you a bit of background there for the listeners. The first time that Parker came to see me, I gave him an option of three different medications that all cause erections. So most people have heard of Viagra. There's also Spedra, and there's also Cialis. Um, and so we, I gave you a trial of all. So yeah, you keep continue. I, I, first, I took the Spedra not fully understanding how that was going to work, I took it and we watched a movie on TV and I was expecting this thing to have a great effect. Well, nothing happened. I said, well, that was a waste of time, wasn't it? Oh, I thought that the first time I heard about Viagra too. Yeah, then I, uh, a few days later, I thought I'm going to take the, uh, what was the the Cialis? The Cialis, yep. 
uh, no, I didn't feel good. It, I didn't mm-hmm. like the way it made me feel. Yeah. And uh, I didn't think I was getting any effect from it, uh, so I took one of the Viagra ones. Yeah. And we went for a walk. Please tell me you didn't take one of the Viagra ones the same day as the Cialis. I think I might have. Great, excellent. <laughs> I'm not, I'm being sarcastic. We went, don't we, ever do that at home. We went for a walk and I felt terrible. Yes. And I said, I don't think I can go too much further. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I, I've, I must clarify that I've still got a, an undamaged heart, mm-hmm. uh, luckily. Um, we've caught everything on the right side. So my heart is undamaged, but I still have... Heart disease. Yes. That is something I'll always have, so I have to be careful. I think the effect of my medication I'm on for my heart and the Viagra and the Cialis. Bad. It wasn't a good mix. Also. I opted. I don't want to take medication. Yeah. And the other thing is, is even people who, so there's a bit of a urban myth that people that have heart problems can't take these drugs. And that's actually not true. People who have angina can't, but people who have normal like blood pressure problems and things like that can. But the problem is, is all those drugs cause vasodilation. And so a lot of people will get headaches or they'll feel flushed or they'll feel dizzy and they just don't feel well. And tablets work everywhere in your body. So there's another option that you've taken up. Um, oh, sorry, before that, I'd like to just get back to the rehab program I put you on was using a particular contraption. And how, mm. how, what is that and how do you find it? You mean the hydro pump? The hydro pump, that's it. Uh, it works fantastic. Yeah. Um, so what do you do and how often do you use it? Um, well, I'm using it daily because I love the effect. <laughs> <laughs> You have to... The perfect patient strikes again. Exactly. <laughs> I'm in love with it. That's what it is. Um, <laughs> What's its name? Crystal <laughs> or... No, I meant my penis. <laughs> uh, the, the pump, you know, in the shower, fill it up, put it on, pump it, and it extends the penis. Yeah. Um, and the, But it doesn't just... It isn't a one-off. You mm-hmm. then have to refill and do it again and... Uh, on the third time, the effect is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but sadly, when you finish that, because of in, the way it is, it wants to go down again. So, you know, that's yeah. just the way it is. So the purpose of using it is just a fact of if you don't use it, you lose it and you're just exercising your penis. It's yep. like taking it to the gym. Yep. And it gets to put a smile on your face when it you does. see it's a normal size. it's a size. great feeling. Yep. No doubt. Good. You know, I think every there wouldn't be a man alive that doesn't like feeling of an erection all right well phil thank you so much for um sharing your whole story with us today so i was delighted to meet phil and i met phil seven weeks before his uh, booked surgery for the robotic procedure and in preparation for um, today's presentation i went back through all of uh, phil's notes from the time i met him and i I can only say that Phil actually represents the perfect patient. And I say this it's because if we get time to actually prepare patients using a whole range of physiotherapy methods before their surgery, when we get much quicker recovery. And when I started working in this field about 15 years ago, patients were only seen post-operatively. So um, we quickly learnt that those guys who were having the opportunity to do a bit of a lead-in time, losing weight, getting their pelvic floor stronger, then they were doing most of the 
necessary work before there was even a problem because we do anticipate that every man if they have surgery will become incontinent and impotent so uh, it's a pretty rough deal men are usually traveling along quite nicely minding their own business they have this random blood test and all of a sudden freak show they get whammed slam dunked with (laughs) okay you've got cancer you don't have any symptoms we can fix it because we've caught it early but the price you're going to pay for that is to be incontinent and lose your penile function, erectile dysfunction. So you can imagine most men are pretty distraught and confused and distressed when they have this. However, along comes physiotherapy, fortunately. Within hopefully a week or so of diagnosis, um, we can start getting patients prepped. So most patients actually have um, to have a six-week gap between their prostate biopsy and the surgery itself just to let things settle down, such as the bleeding um, with any ejaculation. Uh, so Phil comes in to see me uh, pretty much the 5th of February, just a week or so after his final diagnosis, and we had a seven-week preparation. Phil pre- basically went through a pre-operative uh, assessment with me. On that day, we just checked in with what his life normal activities were all about for work and fitness. I really want to know about their physical activity and what, what they like to do. And Phil t- talked to me about the fact that he liked to walk most days of the week, about 8,000 steps per day, and he was swimming nightly up to one kilometre. So he was a really fit man already. He was encouraged through the surgeon, however, for for Phil to go along to um, a dietitian to lose some weight because this helps with the nerve sparing and that sexual function. The pelvic floor is basically something, as Phil's already mentioned, he didn't really know about at all. And most men that I meet on the very first day think A, that it's women's business and B, that they're going to have to get down on the ground and start doing some sit-ups. But I tell them they won't be needing their joggers in their shorts when they come rolling in. We then do a thorough assessment of what their bladder function, bowel function and sexual function is like currently or normally. And then we look at all the things that we might be able to um, help with. So, Phil, how did you find that first preoperative physiotherapy session? You can be completely honest. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't really sure what I was what I was letting myself in for, and and then in talking about pelvic floor exercise, I didn't even know how I was going to do that, and I, I, and I wasn't even sure how they you were going to know that I was doing the right thing until you put me on the um, ultrasound on machine. the ultrasound, and then I got, it all clicked, and I got oh, okay, I get it now, so I could see what I was doing and the reaction to my pelvic floor. And so therefore I knew what, what sensation I had to have inside to make the, the pelvic floor work correctly. So that, that was a kind of eye opener for me as, as well. And, and, it, and it was, it was good in that time. I could, I knew I was doing the right thing. Yeah. And, and then you put, and then you over, over time, you went on to timing me and how long I could hold in my pelvic floor for and that kind of thing. So the endurance and then the rapid response in case I was coughing and sneezing. Yep. So, um, I was able to hold it for a minute quite comfortably, and I can I got down to I think I was we timed it about five, five point. Points. You did ten ten quick pelvic floor contractions in five point five six seconds. That's about as quick as you can get. Um, yeah. So yeah, I was so I've been working on that obviously the seven weeks pre-op. Yep. And um, and obviously after the operation, I mean I did did leak a bit after the catheter was taken out, but then eventually it all started to settle down and. I'm here now, nearly five months post-op, and I, I, I still have a little bit of leakage, but I'm I'm dry at night, yeah. And um, I'm only having to wear a shield, which mm-hmm. is just a very tiny um, guard inside your underwear, yeah. Um, 
And that just really, if, if sometimes if I get hay fever, so I, I sneeze a bit. And have a bit of a sneezing attack. You know, I have a sneezing attack, and if I'm not careful, I'm not thinking about it, then I might, yep. I might leak. Yeah. Great. So just on what Phil mentioned about the way that we assessed his pelvic floor in that very first appointment, well, when I first started working in this field in 2005, traditionally we were doing what was called the per-rectal or finger-up-the-bottom test again. And at the time um, I thought, well, it's not really fair that men have to go through this um tests that they really don't enjoy receiving when they don't have a prostate anymore. So fortunately the real-time ultrasound um, was becoming available and so modern technology was improving and we were able to actually apply the ultrasound on the outside of um, Phil's abdomen and look and get that visual feedback while we were actually teaching him pelvic floor. And because it's actually quite complex and just about every guy says to me, A, they don't know a pelvic floor and B, they don't even know they have one, um, that having that visual feedback has been like a deal breaker in actual fact. So I simply put this on um, guys' bellies and say, just relax your belly, relax your buttock, and let's just gently think of what it's like to be stopping the flow or holding on to the urine and just simply think of drawing the testes up in the penis in or, as I commonly refer to it, the nuts-to-guts exercise. So... Because when I started working in this field in 2005, we were doing um, things preoperatively, sorry, postoperatively, and finding men were taking a long time to get better, we also found that um, these ultrasound tests were something that we could do. So I sort of played around with those and devised, and that's what Phil was mentioning. We, we like our patients to do the pelvic floor training in standing mostly, and I'm pleased to say I've had research now saying that's the best position to present um, to men from the outset because that's a position they're going to tend to leak in with any movement or coughing, sneezing, being on their feet for longer periods of time. As Phil was mentioned, he still sneezes and gets a bit of a leak, but we're going to see if we can um, chat about that a little bit more. Overall, though, the pelvic floor, if we do a number of sets per day in both fast and slow actions, so usually we do a rapid 10 as quick as we can and we do a holding 10 where we hold for up to 10 seconds with an equal rest time times 10. So a typical set is 10 quick and 10 slow. Each set takes about three minutes. And I like my patients to do a five to six sets per day. Phil, how onerous was that, that target? Not onerous. The big, big, biggest thing for me was actually remembering to do it. Yeah. Not not because I wasn't thinking about it. So now I have a routine. It's not always when I'm standing up, but if I'm at a set of traffic lights, I, I know I'll do, I'll hold it for the duration of the red light, things like that, just, just as a memory prompt, because I, I don't always remember to do it when I'm standing up. So, I, I, and I do try and work. I've got a workstation where I can stand and work. So, when I'm doing that, sometimes I'm, I'm hang on, I'm pelvic floor. Great. So, you're still pelvic floor aware? Yeah. And is this something, Joe, that Phil's going to have to do for the rest of his life? Well, I, it's a great question, Melissa, because I have had the benefit of seeing men who have gone through the operation being completely continent for months, if not years at a time, and then return to see me five years later with leakage again. And typically, what happens is, They've forgotten to do their exercises or mostly they've actually put on a bit of weight, got pretty lazy, but just because they're older become more sedentary. So they're spending less time on their feet, including that afternoon grandpa nap that comes along and they recline. And they might recline and fall asleep and leap, stay there half the day and then, you know, have a glass of wine and forget to go out for a walk. So whole body health, uh, I think needs to include the pelvic floor for men because it certainly does for women. So further research that I did showed that if you did three sets of pelvic floor 
per day at least ongoing, you would improve your erectile function in men after um, prostate cancer surgery. And also the original research done in men was done by a lady called Professor Grace Dory who showed that three sets of pelvic floor exercises a day improved male erectile function. I wanted to ask, does it affect your fertility? And I think the answer will be no, but not everyone listening is medical, so I'd like to ask Exactly, no, question. and we've had a number of guys um, asking that. So uh, obviously uh, your fertility is, um, is related to your ability to produce sperm. So we're not doing anything into the testicles and uh, affecting that. We're not um, affecting any of the tubing, the pipe work to get it out. So it doesn't make any difference there. There are some interesting practices around the world in doing things to their scrotum, like sticking in needles and inflating it with like a litre of saline. Like mm. you know, if you think of a, a, a litre milk bottle or something and then blowing that, I'm not exactly sure sort of what the attraction of, of doing that is. And the, the saline just gets absorbed over a few hours Um uh, so doing things to the scrotum would certainly make you a bit more concerned. Um, we've had guys who are interested in having uh, scrotal enhancement as well, and it's certainly possible with the um, the fillers. Um, it's it's not as great a procedure as um, as injecting and augmenting the shaft. You know that works really well. And, you know, we routinely get a one-inch uh, increase in circumference. So uh, it won't help much on a podcast when I put my, my <laughs> finger to my, to my thumb and sort of show, well, that's sort of the average sort of flaccid circumference, my index finger going to the, the knuckle on my thumb. But then when I separate that by an inch, that's the kind of increase in circumference and sort of that cross-sectional I'm area. I'm looking and, it, and it's quite impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's impressive. So I can imagine, though... That does it so it increases girth, I get that, but it can't possibly increase length, can it? Yes and no, mostly no. So we tell guys this is not a length procedure, it's a it's a girth procedure. And then we t- explain to them that, you know, if you are interested in um, pleasing your partner, then maybe girth is more important than, than length, mm. length, and there are studies sort of certainly backing that up. Um for guys who get moderate shrinkage, so who perhaps are somewhat in that grower sort of area where their flaccid penis is not as long as their erect penis, um, then having this filler, the weight of the filler, and just having that volume to resist the, 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 the shrinkage can be really useful. So we'd have a high percentage of guys say, yeah, oh, it just hangs out so much more. I have had a couple of guys say, you know, they're measuring it and they think the length is longer, but I, I, there's no real good reason to believe that that's going to happen. Then we get some guys who are uh, the ultimate shrinkers. It's like a belly button. It's yeah. an innie, not an outie. Yeah. Hi, this is Dr. Joey Milios, and we're going to be having a little bit of anatomy lesson, especially focusing on all the boy bits that most men may not be so familiar with in terms of correct terminology or even positioning. So let's have a start. Wherever you are, if you're lying, sitting or standing, I just want you to very gently place your hand on your belly. Next, place your thumb on your navel and just see where your little finger then rests. It'll probably rest on the pubic bone and that's a bone at the front of your bony pelvis. 
Between the pubic bone at the front and the coccyx at the back is a big sling of muscle known as the pelvic floor. And the pelvic floor has many, many functions. It helps to support the bladder, the bowel and all the abdominal organs. It's involved in emptying our body waste through the urinary valve or sphincter to empty the bladder at the front. And then the rectal or anal sphincter from the back to empty the bowel waste. So the pelvic floor holds everything in, empties everything out, but also is involved with breathing, posture, and also core strength for looking after our lower back and um, abdominal muscles. Beyond that, we have, of course, the penis, the testes, and the sac, known as the scrotum, and that external or outside area known as the perineum, which is basically the outside area of the pelvic floor. Deep inside, guys also have the bladder and then the prostate, which is immediately below the bladder and then links in to the pelvic floor by something called the urinary sphincter. So the bladder has an internal automatic sphincter known as the bladder neck sphincter and then an external pelvic floor urinary sphincter. When men have problems with their prostate, such as prostate cancer, where they need surgery to remove the prostate, or enlargement of the prostate, which ends up taking a lot of space and can really contribute to flow problems, then guys often need to know about strategies such as medicine or exercise um, or surgeries to help improve their prostate function. Sometimes men have pain in the perineum, testes or penis, and this can all be sometimes referred to as prostatitis. Recently, we've learned that not so many men actually have true prostatitis, and in fact, there can be problems with the pelvic floor, the spine, or a whole range of things in that area known as the pudendal nerve. This is a nerve that's the nerve to the private parts, which supplies the bowel, bladder, and sexual function. It also provides the sensation, so any pain can mean potentially there's impact on the pudendal nerve, particularly in the area known as the sacroiliac joint, where it comes down from the sacrum and spine and leads into the pelvic area. So boys, it's really important to know what your anatomy is, what you have, and I thoroughly recommend that every month, just like girls have to do, that you get a little bit in tune with yourself. Why not make it the first of every month? Get familiar with what your penis and testicles normally feel like. Is there a change? Is there any pain? Have you noticed any sign of change in your erectile function, your ability to orgasm or hold on to erection or even pooing and peeing problems? Has there been any changes to flow, the ability to empty or stop or start your bladder or the bowel? Have you suddenly had a bit more constipation or maybe even some bleeding from the rectum? So many simple things can be addressed early, things like hemorrhoids or simple cysts in the testes which don't necessarily mean you've got anything seriously wrong or sinister. But it's early recognition that we need to focus on. Get familiar with your body, your boy bits, know what's normal for you, and then once a month just take two or three minutes to have a good check and feel. If anything changes from one month to the next, be sure to go visit your doctor and get a general checkup. Simple blood tests such as a PSA or prostate-specific antigen are worthwhile from the age of 40 if there's been any history of prostate cancer. 
but most men from the age of 50 are encouraged to have this blood test annually. If there's any concern with the blood test, doctors will generally then provide a digital rectal examination or that finger test. Now, most guys who attend a GP will only need the blood test, but if there's any concerns with the blood test, then traditionally there's an opportunity to go and then have a follow-up referral to a urologist who will provide a few more tests, including the DRE. However, many, many things can go wrong with the whole pelvic area in men. And one thing that I've learned, which completely astonished me, was in fact that if a man notices any change in his penile function, that is, deformity or bending or reduced blood flow in any way that's not normal for you, it could indicate that there's a problem with your heart or cardiovascular system. So a common phrase that I like to use is that your heart health and your heart health are very linked. In fact, from research we know there's a three-year window of opportunity to address any issues such as Peyronie's disease, which is a bend in the, uh, in the penis, which could potentially be linked to heart disease. So boys, if you've got concerns with your blood flow in your penis, you've got the opportunity to maybe have a bit of a mirror to what's going on in your heart vessels. Simple things like coronary calcium score tests can also be provided to just check what your heart arteries are doing. And this can save potentially a cardiac event such as a heart attack occurring some years later. So tune into your body, scan it, know what's normal for you and get familiar with the body parts that every man should know a little bit about. All over the world, men live an average of five years less than women. And this is potentially because of things like prostate cancer or uh, suicide becoming catastrophic events because men actually leave things a little bit longer than they probably should have to address and seek help for. So it's a responsibility for every man to have a chat to his brother, son and mates and any other male relative to just share this know yourself. Get in tune with your own body, keep an eye on things and go to the doctor if you've got any concerns. It's never silly or stupid to ask for a second opinion other than your own. Don't Google things and panic. Go to the doctor, get the simple test done and most of the time you'll be pleasantly surprised. It's a really simple explanation or solution to your problem. Okay, guys, as I like to say, Prost or cheers to your own health. Signing off. Hi, Melissa here. I thought that today we'd talk about penis anatomy and we'd just talk about how it works in plain English. So there's lots of names for penises. Chubby, boner, fat, dick, pecker, doodle, old mate, knob, wang, and my personal favourite, willy. So basically the good old willy is just made of three cylinders, two which laid side by side like skinny cigars. They're actually called the corpora cavernosa, which is a bit of a mouthful, so let's just stick with cigars. They fill up with blood when you get an erection. And then there's another third chamber that lies below these and is the home of the urethra or the P-tube. This cylinder also gives rise to the glands or the head of the penis. The cigars are surrounded by one of the most flexible tissues in the whole body and it's called the tunica. It's very, very strong and very, very flexible. The tunica and the cylinders inside fill with blood when you get an erection and they can expand up to five times their original size. 
As they do this, they become hard like a tyre under pressure. Fortunately, they never can overfill and they certainly won't pop like a tyre. The prostatic plexus is a large bundle of nerves which hugs the prostate like Mickey Mouse ears. It's located in the prostate's fascial shell, which is a layer of connective tissue. This nerves have a really important job of transmitting the messages from your big head to your little head to get the blood pumping into the shaft of the penis. Blood pumps into the penis via the large branch of a pudendal artery and veins drain the blood from the corpora cavernosum, the cigars, to the body via the efferent vein. When the penis is full of blood, it pinches the veins shut, like shutting the doors. And it's just like parking your car on a garden hose. And so the blood can actually stay in the shaft of the penis. A fact you might not know about your penis is that it actually goes all the way back into your body as far as the dangly bit is outside. So it's like an iceberg. So when you actually tell someone that the size of your penis is double what you can actually see, you're actually not telling a fib at all. The penis arteries are some of the smallest in the body. They have one millimetre in diameter. The arteries feeding the heart are five times bigger, so it explains why as men age and the blood vessels get narrower, erections become more difficult. This is why having a change in your penile function is a warning sign to get checked out from your GP for other issues. So think of your penis as a canary down the mine shaft. For those of you who don't know this story, in 1913, a very clever man thought it would be a good idea to put canaries in the mine shafts where men were working because it would detect carbon monoxide levels and other toxic gases. And therefore, because canaries were more susceptible to them, if the canary became unwell or dropped dead, then they'd know that it was time to get the men out of the mine and um, flush some fresh air through there. So this is the same with your penis. When you've got a problem with it, think of it as a warning sign. If things aren't working properly down there, you really need to take a trip to your GP and get things sorted out and make sure that your heart's healthy and everything else. And then secondary, we can fix your erections. And I think it's really important to know that, you know, penile health is important for your physical health and also your mental health. So if you do have problems down there, don't be embarrassed to ask someone for help. Just go and get some. This is Dr. Joe. Thank you so much for listening to our program today. And we're pleased to let you know that we will be having weekly podcasts, not fortnightly, as originally proposed. And this is because of the popularity of our podcast. We're getting so many emails, so many questions, and so much feedback. And Melissa and I greatly appreciate it. What we'd really love for you to do is share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download off Spotify or subscribe to thepenisproject.org and then you'll get a weekly email of our newest releases. Also feel free to send us a review and this will greatly help in our ongoing ability to bring you new and fresh information as that's the way we build what comes next. We also have show notes attached and this gives a bit of a background into any additional resources or explanations of what we're talking about. Finally, it's my great pleasure to let you know that PROST, the exercise program which sponsors our podcast, is now available on a USB resource for any man diagnosed with prostate cancer, an exercise program. Clinicians can buy these as well as the everyday bloke. So feel free to check out prost.com.au. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Those dread dark days 
Fun.